Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's and I actually Kevin. have a completely different sermon planned for today. And a couple of days ago, the Lord said to me, put that one on hold. And this is what you need to, to speak this morning and share with them. So while, while we were at the, I think I said something about this last week or the week before, but while we were at the youth rally, there's so many things that the Lord spoke to me while we were there that I just am still processing. And when Mark Hankins was up preaching, and if you don't know who he is, you can find him online, whatever, but a uh, pretty famous preacher, and he's up preaching, and... and uh, <clears throat> Because he's from Texas and because he's in Louisiana, and I know how all these Texans are, and they're always saying things, you know, that uh, are really simple and really deep. And he made this statement, and when he made the statement, I knew that God was speaking to me because usually I don't like these kind of statements, okay? Because they just, I don't know why, but when he spoke these words, they just went, it, it was like, if God can do this, it was like God punched me in the stomach. <laughs> it was like just hit me so hard and uh, just really opened up some things on the inside of me and uh, just filled my heart with, with joy, really. And I haven't been able to forget that statement. And the statement was just really simple. He said, Jesus said, come and drink. He didn't say, come and think. Did you hear that? Jesus said, come and drink. He didn't say, come and think. And if we read in John chapter 7 where he made the statement, come and drink, it actually is true that everyone around him, if you'll read all around that, the whole context, is doing nothing but thinking about it. And nobody is drinking what he's offering. Everyone is arguing. Everyone is uh, meditating on it. Some people are in his face saying that this is wrong. Other people are saying, well, maybe it's okay. Maybe it's right. And we're very good at contemplating things because that makes it really easy for us to, to put it on the back burner and we'll save this for another day. But you know, there's something really interesting about the move of God. You may think that you'll save this for another day, but there's no guarantee that there will be another day. None of us have a guarantee that we'll even be alive on this earth tomorrow. But in the scripture, it says very plainly and very clearly that today is the day of salvation. There is no other day. There's a story told in the Old Testament, and it's repeated as an example for us in the book of Hebrews about Esau. And there were two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And Esau, because he was born first as my two twin grandsons, Michael and Gabriel, Michael loves to say, I'm older than Gabriel because I was born 30 minutes before he was. Well, that's kind of how it was with Esau and Jacob. And Jacob was the older of the sons. Jacob was much more pleasing according to the flesh to his father because Jacob was a hunter and a fisher and a kind of a man's man and Jacob was kind of a mama's boy sort of thing and, you know, manly, but more sitting around reading books maybe and that kind of thing. And uh, it says that Esau was covered with hair. You know, he, he was a, a, a man that was pleasing to a man like his father, the kind, of, the kind of son that the father wanted to have. But whether he had been that or not, because he was born first, the blessing and the double portion and the inheritance belonged to Esau, not to Jacob. But you know the story that Esau, he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. He sold it. He rejected it in order to get a bowl of beans, basically. A bowl of lentils, because he was so hungry. In other words, he was so hungry for the things of this earth, for what was presented to him in this moment of time, that he was willing to give up all of his birthright that belonged to him, just to have pleasure in this moment. And is that not how sin is? And that is the deception of sin. It's a lie to think that sin doesn't bring pleasure. Sin brings pleasure. And the scripture says that sin brings pleasure, but that pleasure is only for a moment. It doesn't last. 
And at, before the pleasure is even done, the guilt washes in, the consequences washes in, the thoughts of what have I done wash in, and everything can be destroyed with one moment of sin. And the sin doesn't have to be something just you know horrible and classic sin like cheating on your spouse or something like that. For Esau, it was simply saying, I would rather eat food right now than have the blessing of God that, he, that, that he's provided for me in this life. And he sold his birthright. And Esau apparently thought he would be able to get out of the bargain. You know, we always think that when we are facing sin, that it'll be okay. God will forgive me. And God does forgive us. And he is merciful to us. And thank God that, that we get many, many second chances. So many second chances, right, in life. But that's no guarantee that there will be a second chance again. You understand? And so for Esau, there was actually no second chance again. And the scripture tells us in Hebrews that Esau sought for repentance with tears. He wanted to repent. He wanted to change things back to the way they had been before. But the Bible says that he could not find that repentance. Because repentance is a gift from God. It's a gift of his mercy. It's a gift of his, his grace. Sometimes you look at people that you pray for them to receive Jesus or you want them to receive Jesus anyway. You probably aren't praying really strongly for them, but you'd like for them to receive Jesus. You hope they receive Jesus. And you wonder, why haven't they received Jesus yet? Well, it, it's a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. You cannot just come to the Father unless the Father calls you. You can't just come to Jesus. We like to say that, you know, on such and such date in my life, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. And, and it's true, but the real truth is that He accepted you. He accepted me. He chose you out. He called you to Himself. So when the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts, that's the moment to say yes to Him. To be like Isaiah and say, here am I, send me. Because there's no guarantee that tomorrow you'll be able to say, here am I, send me. The feeling will pass, the mercy, the grace has gone, and you don't think the same things that you thought today. So today is the day of salvation. There's a story in the Old Testament, before we look at John chapter 7, where David is uh, in a cave of Abdullah, and it's his fortress or his stronghold. He's, he's, he's holed up, literally. He's holed up in this cave. And uh, he has his, his soldiers around him. And while he's in this cave, he begins to thirst. He needs a drink. Now, the story is not about them not having water, okay? Of course, they had water there. They couldn't have been able to survive without water. It's their stronghold. They've brought water into that cave. They've brought food into that cave. They have the rations that they need as soldiers to be able to fight, to do what they need to do. But David, you can imagine that he's drinking a cup of the water that they brought into the cave. And as he's drinking it, he says these words. He says, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. That's 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 15. And if you know that story... Three of his most trusted soldiers risk their lives to go down to Bethlehem where the enemy is encamped, sneak into Bethlehem, and draw water out of that well that is by the gate. And they bring it back to David, and David cries out to God, I cannot drink this water because this is not water, this is the blood of men. Because they risk their lives to bring this water to me. But think about David. He has water to drink, but he wants a special water. He wants the water that only comes from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. There's something very spiritual in what he said. We today can be satisfied with the water of this world, with the water of our religion, with the water of the way we like to do things, with the water of, of what we have in this life that's good enough just to get by for this life. But you know that there is a difference between the water that this world offers and the water who is Jesus Christ. The water that comes only from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gates of heaven. The water that opens the doors to the presence of God and to the gates of heaven. And if you thirst for that water, then Jesus says to come to me. One of the things that Shalene was saying up here during, during worship is the Lord had spoken to her a word, I think, 
that he said that I'm sending a famine on the land. And when she said those words out, this is what was in my mind. There's nothing that makes people hungry like a good old-fashioned famine. And there's nothing that makes people thirsty like a good old-fashioned drought. So let God send famine. Let God send drought. Let God allow frustration to come into our lives because all he's doing us doing for us is a big favor by showing us that you're not going to take any of this stuff with you anyway. And when it all comes down to the end, all of it will be complete and utter frustration without the water of life, without the gold, the silver, and the precious stones that come only in Jesus Christ. You know, there are many people uh, who in that day, Jesus said, they will say, Lord, Lord unto me, and I will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. And then they're going to answer, but we went to church, we, did, we laid hands on the sick and they got healed, we cast out demons even. We were really good Christians. And Jesus is going to say, but I never even knew you. You never knew me. You never drank of the water that comes from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gates of heaven. And then there are other people that the scripture tells us that they will be saved, they'll get to heaven, but it says that they will be saved as if by fire. You know, they're just going to barely squeak into the gates of heaven. And I'm happy for everybody that just barely gets to heaven. That's wonderful. Uh, you know, that's amazing. Often we hear of deathbed conversions, you know. And, and I, I never like to say that I know a person went to hell. I wouldn't say that about the most wicked men that have ever lived on earth because I don't actually know that. That's between me, between them and God. And only God judges those things and knows those things. And nobody knows what went through even a Hitler's head at the, last, at the last moment. You know what I'm saying? We don't know that. But I know for myself, I don't want to just squeak by and barely get into heaven. I don't want to enter into the presence of God ashamed. And the scripture tells us there are some who will stand before him and they will be ashamed. Because when their works pass through the fire, it's wood, it's hay, it's, it's stubble, and it just gets all burned up and nothing's left. And he said that there are others, and this is God's desire for each one of us, that when our works, because we will be, our works will be judged, that when those works pass through the fire, there will be, remain gold and silver and precious stones. So there is a thirst that God wants to create in us. There is a hunger that he wants to give unto us. Look at John chapter 7. And I'm just going to read a few verses for now, and then we'll read a few more after this. But in John chapter 7, in verse 37, John 7, 37, uh, we read that, let me find it, uh, on the last day, the great day of the feast, and I'll talk about that feast in just a minute, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, so he stands up in the midst of everybody, Jesus pops up right there in the midst of everybody, and he cries out, saying, so when it says cried out, you can imagine they spoke with a very loud voice so that everyone around could hear him. And he said, if anyone is thirsty, so there's an if there, are you thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, so all this is based on the scripture. This is what is written. This is God's word. From his innermost being will flow rivers, or from his belly, from his spirit man, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, so we don't have to wonder what was Jesus talking about. Maybe there's some hidden meaning here. No, it's stated very plainly for us. And every Jew that heard that on that day knew what he was talking about. This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given. Notice that the word given is in italics, if you have my version of the Bible, because it's not in the original. It literally says, for the Spirit was not yet. Not that he didn't exist, but he was not yet here on the earth and in their, their midst. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, is anyone thirsty? If anyone is thirsty. I believe that that question is probably, uh, it's definitely the focus of what Jesus is saying to us today. That's probably the most important question that the Lord can ask of us as a church today. Is anyone really thirsty? Oftentimes we wonder, why don't we see a move of the Holy Spirit like we're seeing, we can read about in the book of Acts. Why don't we see more of Jesus in our lives? Why are my prayers not being answered? 
Why am I asking God and nothing is happening when He said that you will ask and it shall be given unto you? We read these promises in the Bible and we don't understand why they're not working. Because we're still in the category of people that are thinking and not in the category of people that are drinking. He said, if anyone is thirsty, are we really thirsty today? Do we really thirst for Jesus so much that we just cannot stand to live any, way, any other way? That we wonder, why are we even going to church if Jesus is not going to be there in our midst? And then we make our theological statement, and it's true, based upon the scripture, where two or more of us are gathered together in his name, Jesus is there in our midst. The Holy Spirit is here in, in our midst. And we repeat those words, we pray those words, we confess those words, and yet it doesn't feel like he's in our midst. And we don't see the answers to our prayers. We don't see God moving in the way that we know he wants to move because we read about it in the Bible. Let me give you an example. When they are all filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and then over and over again it repeats in Acts, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Some group of people is constantly getting filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and they begin to speak with other tongues, and they begin to prophesy. Well, we don't hear that going on very much, do we? But that's not the big thing. The big thing is then, inevitably, over and over again, it says that God begins to add people to the church that need to be added. We don't see people getting added to the church. We don't see a lot of church growth. And I'm not just talking about in Yarrington, across local churches all across the United States. In fact, we went through this thing called COVID, where most every single church shut down completely. And after that, many of those churches have never opened up again, or they've got 1,000-seat auditorium with 200 people in them. Then we have to say, the Holy Spirit is not moving the way that he was moving in the book of Acts. And we can blame the Holy Spirit for that, or we can ask ourselves this question. Are we thirsty? Do we really hunger and thirst after him? Jesus says, if, it's a big, really big if, if anyone is thirsty. So I hope today through what we're looking at, and I've been praying today through what we've been looking at, and for the worship this morning, and God's already been doing it, that he will begin to stir up a thirst in us that he will remind us of what it is that truly quenches our thirst of who it is and how much we need the Holy Spirit. So it says that this happened on the last day of the great day of the feast, and that's really actually important information, information for us. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a feast that's called in Hebrew Sukkot, and Sukkot simply means tabernacles or of tabernacles, and uh, when we say tabernacle, that's not a very good word, but that's kind of what we call this, this uh, feast because that's what it's called in the King James Version. And the only reason it's not a very good word is because we associate uh, tabernacle with, you know, like the, the tabernacle in the wilderness where, you know, a very fancy, fancy tent. But this is not talking about fancy tents, okay? This is uh, in the New American Standard that I have. It's called the Feast of Booths. But I don't really like that word that much either. I don't know a good word in English for this. <laughs> but but um, uh, lean-tos, that might be a good word. The Feast of Lean-tos. Because this is what they're doing. They're getting branches and they're building temporary dwellings out of branches. If you've ever done that, I don't know what you call it. Some people call it a lean-to. Because you've got branches leaning up this way, that way. You make yourself a little teepee or something out of, those, out of those sticks that you find in the wilderness. And it offers a temporary shelter. It's definitely not a place where you could live permanently. And God commanded them that once a year you're going to go camping together. Once a year you're going to have a big camp out. And you're not going to bring RVs, whatever kind of chariot RVs they had back then. And you can't even just bring your tents. You've got to go in there and you've got to get sticks and branches. And you've got to cut them down and you've got to build these lean-tos, these booths. I don't like the word booth because it makes me think of a photo booth or something like, like that, you know, or a voting booth or something, uh, ballot where you cast your ballot or something. But, but just get the picture of these really rough temporary dwellings. And they were supposed to build these in Jerusalem. Okay, where they already had houses to live in. So you were like, it was literally the same thing as we do when we go camping, if you don't take an RV, if you go to a primitive campsite. 
They left the comforts of their house, which was you know, just right there. They could go in there, but they weren't allowed to for a week. They leave the comforts of their house, and they go camping on their yard. They go camping in the temple. And this was what God commanded them to do once a year. We're going to see later that they never obeyed it, but it is what God commanded them to do. They very rarely obeyed it. So it was on the last day of this feast. What happened at this feast that had to do with water? Well, at this feast, every day for seven days, there would be a water ritual where the priest would go out through one of the gates of Jerusalem that's called the water gate. Not like the Nixon thing, but the water gate. And he would go out of the water gate and he would go down to the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam was the single source of water for the city of Jerusalem. Okay, This was their source of water. So that was very symbolic to them. And he would take a golden pitcher and he would draw water out of the pool of Siloam. And while he was drawing water out from the pool of Siloam, the people around him would be rejoicing. And when I say rejoicing, not rejoicing like we are at Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship, because we are not rejoicing in a biblical sense. The people around them, all the people, the men especially, men in the first place, another thing we don't want to embrace in our society, but the men were dancing before the Lord. The men's hands were raised before the Lord. Do you remember that Paul said, I want for husbands in every church to lift their hands up before the Lord and to make prayers before the Lord because that's not natural for us guys. You're always going to find the women out at the front doing that first. And then he says to the, to the wives, and I want them to sit in silence and listen to their husbands and receive from them. Because that's not natural for you gals, okay? And God is saying, I want you to get out of your comfort zone, and I want you to do something different. Because you're not, get what Jesus said. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. He didn't say, I'm going to go to you. We're sitting here thinking, well, if you want me to drink, Jesus, you'll bring me the water. And Jesus is sitting there saying, I didn't say I'm going to bring the water to you. What, am I your servant? Am I here to wait on you? You're here to wait on me. I said, if you want to drink, then you come to me, and I will freely give you this water that I have laid down my life, this water of salvation that you might have. So the priest, as he's drawing the water out of the pool of Siloam in this golden pitcher, he would would quote these these words from Isaiah 12.3. And we don't have definite historic Uh, proof of this, but it's most likely that he would actually sing these words because they are a psalm where it says, therefore, with joy, you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. And then he would take the golden pitcher. He would go back into the city through the water gate and another priest would meet him who would have a pitcher full of wine. This is the joy of the Lord. There was water and there was wine. And when he would go then they would go to the altar together. Remember that Jesus on the cross, he shed his blood, the wine. But when the soldier came to see if he was still alive or not, and he thrust him into the side with a spear, it says that water and blood flowed out mixed together as an offering to the Lord. And so they would take the water and they would take the wine and they would pour them out upon the great altar. The great altar is the big altar where they would offer up the animal sacrifices daily where the smoke would rise up not on the inside of the holy place but in the court and where the priest would offer up this this sacrifice and they would pour the water and the wine onto this great altar as a, a an offering uh, as a as an offering poured out un, unto the lord and we actually have some historical evidence of these things, uh, actually a great deal of historical evidence of these things. And one of the things I want to show you is in the Talmud, which is a commentary on the scripture, uh, Hebrew commentary on the scripture, written uh, hundreds of years after these events, that there's a question, there's questions and answers, and it says, what does this mean, and why why is this called the drawing and the pouring out of water? Because at the time the Talmud was written, this Talmud was written, they actually were not celebrating this anymore because there's no temple anymore. And so the question is, what does this mean? It's like a catechism, right? What does this mean and why is it called the drawing and pouring out of water? And the answer in the Talmud is 
because of the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh, because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this tells us and shows us that when Jesus got up and said these things, they knew that he was talking about the Holy Spirit because that's what the whole ritual symbolized to them. Okay? And they believed that there would come a day when the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh. You remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter is quoting the Old Testament, the prophet Joel, that the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh and that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. They were looking forward to that day and Jesus jumps up in the middle of them and says, that day is now. That day is right here. That day is by me and through me and in me. And if you're thirsty, come to me and I will give you the Holy Spirit and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know how many people were filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? I mean, we're just talking about you can count them on one hand practically. You know, there's a few that get it for a few minutes like King Saul and he starts to prophesy. There's King David who really has the Holy Spirit in his life and is anointed by the Holy Spirit. You know, there's prophetic psalms that come forth in the, in the psalms that came through King David. You know, we, we have these examples of prophets being filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but it was a rare thing. I mean, your run-of-the-mill person, no matter how much he loved God, never experienced what you have the opportunity to experience this morning, the infilling and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on your life. But they believed that someday God's law would be written on our hearts. They believed that someday God would pour out His Holy Spirit on us, and they understood that this is the well of salvation, that He would save us from our sin. It wasn't a big mystery to them. They got it. They understood it. And so in the book of Hebrews, in the letter to the Hebrews, it's explained uh, uh, that something that they already knew, that the Old Testament sacrifices, they can't take away your sin permanently. That's why the high priest has to do this on Yom Kippur every single year, take the blood into the Holy of Holies. So Yom Kippur, this day of atonement, or this, the, this day when God forgives the sins of the priest and of all the people, that was actually at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. Or that's the feast that signals now it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles. So the whole feast begins with this idea of forgiveness, this idea of atonement. Uh, atonement is a really great old English word that was purposely formulated to uh, mean uh, exactly what it says. It means at one meant to be made at one with God. It speaks of the righteousness that we have with God. Then the later rabbis concerning the joy, they wrote this lament. He who has not seen the joy of the drawing and the pouring of water has not seen any joy in his life. So try to imagine if you can the kind of joy that they were experiencing at this festival. And the wine that was brought in, the water that was brought in, and how what Jesus said was not something he was saying to condemn them, it was something he was saying to invite them. You can have this in your life. You can have this revival in your life if you're thirsty. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, there's a really weird verse in the Bible, a strange verse, and... Uh, it seems like Paul is talking to Timothy about med medical things, and perhaps he was also talking about physical medical things, but it's in the Bible, so we know there's a, a spiritual meaning to it. And he says to Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Anybody ever read that verse? <laughs> use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Okay? I want you to hear this morning the word of the Lord. Stop drinking only water. He didn't say don't drink water, but stop drinking only water and use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Where did Jesus say that the rivers of living water would flow out from? From our belly, from our innermost being. A lot of the reason why we're not seeing the, all that God wants for us to have in our lives, why we're not seeing the kind of revival that we want to see in our community and our lives is because we're too afraid to start using a little bit of the wine of the Holy Spirit. To step out and let the joy of the Lord be our strength. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
So if we're not walking in the joy of the Lord and we're not experiencing the joy of our salvation, remember David prayed to God when he was caught in his sin and everything was falling apart. He prayed to God to forgive him and then he received that forgiveness from God. And he said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. When's the last time you felt joy about being saved? When's the last time that you laughed, that you cried, that you danced before the Lord because you felt joy about being saved? Joy is a feeling. And joy is a position that we receive and we embrace by faith. You can choose joy. You can ask God to restore that joy into your life. A lot of what's going wrong in our churches is we're drinking the water of the word, we listen to the teaching, we listen to the preaching, we get our thoughts right, but we don't receive the wine of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. So Jesus said, come and drink. If you're thirsty, come and drink. You have to come, you have to receive what he gives us, and you have to drink. Well, one of the things that happened at the... uh, youth rally that we went to, and the young people remember this, is different preachers kept bringing out these Hebrew words. And I I was so appreciative of that. I just love that, because uh, sometimes I feel like people are always thinking, eh, quit telling us those Greek words or those Hebrew words or something. And these were young people, and they expected the young people to rise to the occasion and understand it. And i got to be honest with you. Uh, I've done, I haven't in a while, but I've done some teaching with the youth in this church, and, and I noticed something that you don't have to dumb it down for our kids. They're smarter than we are, and they get it. They can understand things. So one of the things that they were talking about there, which is true, is how every Hebrew word has a, a root word which lies at, at, the, at, the, at the foundation of, of its meaning. And if you don't understand the root word, you can't fully understand uh, the word that you're dealing with. And one of those words is the word rain. It has very much to do with this Feast of Tabernacles and with what Jesus is saying here. So the Hebrew word for rain is geshem. There are actually four different Hebrew words for rain. One of them has to do with the early rains that come. One of them has to do with the latter rains that come. One of them has to do with the different types of rain. But the basic word for rain, that just means rain, is the word geshem. And if you don't know this, I'm telling you that in Hebrew, you don't write out any vowels. You just make the sound of vowels. They do have little markings, but that wasn't there in the original. And in Israel today, when you see signs or something's written, you don't see the vowels. You just have to know what what vowels go with that word. And so Geshem actually is made up of three letters, the, the G, the Sha sound, and the M sound. So you've got G, Sha, and M. And this same root word for rain, it's in another Hebrew word that we find in the Old Testament, which is Lehit Gashem. Lehit Gashem. And this is very interesting, because the word Lehit Gashem means for something to be fulfilled. It means for something to come into existence which was not in existence before. Do you remember how it's spoken about the faith of Abraham? That he called those things which were not as if they were. What are you calling in your life that is not as if it were? Many cases, we're calling into existence things that are evil and things that are bad. Oh, I'm so unlucky. Oh, I know everything's going to go bad. I know this isn't going to work out. And we just keep speaking these curses that Satan's just sitting back saying, you're making my job easy. I don't even have to fight against you. You've defeated yourself with your own tongue. But God gives us the Bible. He gives us his word. There's God's opinion. There's how God sees things. There's God's glory, and we can begin to look into the mirror of God's word, and if we can speak these promises over ourselves, and every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ, it says, then we begin to call into existence those things which are not existent in our lives. It's what it means to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
that we've become a new creation. That means we didn't exist before, and now we do exist. Do you know this morning, and really believe in your heart, and live this way, that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not the same as everybody else in this world. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're going to live for all of eternity. When I was young, I used to always say, I don't know why, I always said this, I want to live to be 100. I'd still like to live to be 100, but I never even say it anymore. Now I just say, I'm not going to die anyway. I'm going to live forever. Because Jesus said, those who believe on me will never die. So I'm going to live forever. I call into existence that which most people think doesn't exist, and that is eternal life. But we have that eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the meaning of reign and the meaning of fulfillment goes back to the, to the root of reign. What does rain do? Now, I need to explain something to you. We have rivers, a river in this valley. Two branches, one river, right? We have a river in this valley. Most places you go in Nevada, when people that haven't been to Nevada ask me about Nevada, they say, well, I've only lived there for seven years, but one thing I do know, that there's almost no water in Nevada. And most places you go, there's no water in Nevada. And so everywhere where there's a river, there's things are fertile and things can grow there. And so all that land is used for, for growing things, right? Well, in Israel, in the land of promise, there is no river. Yes, there's the River Jordan, but that's even puner, I think, than the East Walker. And, and by the way, when people, if you don't know this, when people come to visit Nevada and, and from like, say, Oklahoma or something, say, that's our river, and they're like, that's a creek. That's not a river. <laughs> but it's what we got. So we call it a river. So there is no river in the land of promise. In Egypt, they have the Nile. In Babylon, they have the Euphrates. They have the Tigris. There were mighty rivers that surrounded the land of promise. But God said to Abraham, I want you to get up, get off the banks of the Euphrates. And I want you to go to a place where there's no water except the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. In other words, where you will have to depend 100% on me to send rain down from heaven. Now, I know in modern Israel, of course, there's all kinds of forms of irrigation and all these things, but we're talking about back in the Bible times. Everything depended on rain. That's not difficult for us to understand because we know and we experienced this you know, for several years until this year uh, that uh, if there's no snow in the mountains, then we have drought. And we can only hold so much water in reservoirs, and you can only go for so long without precipitation coming down from heaven. And that's how they lived. They had to 100% depend upon God. So when the Feast of Tabernacles came, um, again, it came after the, the, the uh, Yom Kippur, and this understanding of God forgiving us and cleansing us from our sin of salvation. But during the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would fulfill this water ritual every single day. Okay? And their whole belief and what God had put into the Old Testament is that the rains that were coming depended upon their faith to receive the forgiveness that God had for them during this time. To be made one with God, this at one so they really put their heart and their, their soul into this Feast of Tabernacles, or at least they were supposed to. That's what God planned for them. Let me put it this way. God planned for them an annual revival service. Okay, This was supposed to be, after all the hard work of harvesting the crops, you come, you're tired, you're worn out, and you don't have to do anything except get in this little tent that you can make out of sticks, and just let me minister to you, God's saying, and to bring revival. Do you know that God knows that we need seasons of refreshing? We need seasons of revival in our life. How long has it been since we've just sat and received from God? We need seasons of refreshing and revival in our lives. We can't just keep going on and on on our own. And so God planned this season, this, this annual revival for them. Do you know that the Sabbath, once a week, every seventh day, we celebrate it on Sundays, is supposed to be you come to church and you get revived. You get filled up with the Holy Spirit. You know, you can't drive your car very long without filling it up with gas, right? And you can't go very long at all. Try going one day without eating. I, I'm going to tell you the truth. I hate fasting. 
pastor said he hates fasting. Well, if you love fasting, something's wrong. You're not supposed to like fasting. It's supposed to be something that you fast before God because you're humbling your flesh and telling your flesh, shut up, I'm listening to God right now. Okay? And so, so we can't go very long without food. We can't go very long without water in the natural, right? How long can we keep going without the Holy Spirit? That's my question this morning. How long can we keep on going, playing church, without the Holy Spirit in our lives? If anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, let him come and drink. So when the rain, Geshem, the Hebrew word Geshem, would come down, what does it do? Well, Jesus said that, speaking about his own death on the cross, that unless a seed is planted into the ground and dies, it will never bring forth fruit. So the seed of God's word goes into our lives. And the reign of the Holy Spirit causes that word to bring forth fruit in our lives. We can plant and plant and plant, but without the water of the Holy Spirit, without drawing from that, that, that well that's of Bethlehem that's at the gate, nothing is ever growing if we don't have water. So it's not enough to plant. We need the reign of the Holy Spirit. We need His moving in our lives. The very root of the word to fulfill or to come into existence is the word reign. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So this revival, Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Lean-Tos, whatever you want to call it, uh, it symbolized that we are strangers and that we are pilgrims on this earth, that we have no permanent home on this earth. Have we forgotten that? It's something we need to be reminded of week after week after week day after day in our lives, that our home is in heaven, that the kingdom we belong to is not the United States of America or some other country on this earth. God's blessed us to be born into a country. We didn't choose it. We were just born into this country. And God has all kinds of things about how to be a good citizen of the cities we live in, the places we live in, the places where God's put us. And even if you're in Babylon, God said to them, uh, I want you to build houses. I want you to bless the country that you live in. It's a godly thing to love your country and to bless the country that you live in. But it's not our home. It's not where we'll live forever. And the Bible says of Abraham that he wandered in the land of promise and he lived in tents. He refused to live in Sodom. It could have been that Sarah wanted to move to Sodom just as much as Lot's wife wanted to move to Sodom. That's where all the great shopping was. That's where chariots went down the paved streets. That's where the real city life was. That's where things were good. That's where things were comfortable. I don't know if Sarah wanted that or not. I do know Lot's wife wanted it. And Lot's wife dragged him into that Sodom, and he barely got out of there alive. And when he got out, the Sodom was still in his daughters, and it destroyed his family. But Abraham, it says, lived in tents in the land of promise. He was wealthy. He was prosperous. But he never said, this is my home. He always said, I'm looking for my home, my home which is in heaven. So this revival reminded them year after year that they were still following the cloud of the, the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Now, if you don't know what that is, when they were walking through the wilderness, God's glory, what the Hebrews called later, in later years in the Aramaic, called Shekinah or Shekinah is usually the way we say it now. The presence of God, the tent of God covered them over. They lived in God's tent. Notice that God never asked for a house to be built for him. David asked for that. And God agreed to it. But God asked for a tent to be built for him. A tabernacle. Because God is always on the move. A house doesn't move, does it? But a tent moves. You might say God lives in an RV. God's always on the move. And you have to follow him. And so in the wilderness, you have to follow the Lord. You have to listen to his voice. In the wilderness, they had a pillar of cloud. This was the presence of God. They could see it with their eyes that would appear during the day. And there was a pillar of fire that would appear at night. If you ever saw the Charlton Heston movie, Ten Commandments, they've got pretty decent for special effects back then uh, depiction of that. I don't know exactly what this looked like, but it was the glory of God. They could see God during the day. They could see his presence. They could see his manifestation during the day, and they could see his manifestation during the night. And here's the thing. Whenever the pillar moved, whether it was the cloud one or the fire one, whenever it moved, they had to pack everything else, uh, everything up, and they had to move and follow that. Whenever it stopped, that's where they were going to camp. 
And the Bible actually tells us that there were times when the pillar of cloud would move and it would stop, and in the morning they'd get their tents out. You, you know what camping's like. It's a lot of work. And they would get everything set up, and then, hope the pillar of fire would start moving at the night. And they'd have to tear everything down. They were there for less than 12 hours, and they'd have to tear everything down and move. Because that's what God said. You've got to be on the move. God wasn't doing that to toy with them. God was doing that to prosper them. God was doing that to protect them from their enemies. So many times we want to second-guess God. Why are you moving me in this way? Because you don't see the, the, the big picture. But faith is not about having to see the big picture. Faith means trust. Faith is just about saying, if you want me to drink, I want to drink. Here am I. Send me. If you want me to be here, I'm here. If you want me to leave, I'll leave. I'm going to go where you say to go. I'm going to do what you say to do. And I'm going to speak what you say to speak. So this revival, this Feast of Tabernacles where Jesus is speaking, it coincided with the beginning of the rains. In the fall, they would harvest all of the crops. And after the Feast of Tabernacles, that's the time when the early rains were supposed to, supposed to come. You have the early, and, or the former, as the King James calls them, rains, and the latter rains. And so the early rains were supposed to come first. And this is also something I think living in this part of Nevada is easy for us to understand. So when the early rains would come, they were, they were to be soft and gentle rains that would not wash away the soil, but would prepare the soil for the planting season. Okay? And so the early rains were, 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 were crucial. It was critical that they get these early rains and that they come in the way that they needed them to come. And that's what their prayer was for, that the early rains would be poured out. And then after the early rains, they would plant, have the planting season. And then around Easter, what we call Easter, around Passover, would come the season of the latter rains. And when the latter rains would come, that was the time when all of the, the uh, uh, barley uh, was about ready to be harvested and the wheat was going to be harvested later. And they needed the latter rains to bring the harvest into full fruition that it would grow and produce the most amount of fruit and be ready for the harvest, right? But the latter rains, they're torrential rains. Listen to this. The latter rains are torrential rains. They are rains that if they came without the early rains, would, could, could wipe the crops out completely and destroy the land all around. If the land was so dry that it could, that it did not have the, because it did not have the early rains or enough early rains, then the latter rains could destroy their entire harvest that year. Well, that's something not difficult for us to understand in Nevada either. You know, I look at this year, you go for a few years with drought, with nothing coming down, and then all of a sudden, here it comes, and everybody's sandbagging and panicking. We're going to get flooded, you know. It would be okay if it all came like that if we had been prepared for it. If, but there's no preparation. Just the, the, the rain comes all at once, and the snows come all at once, and everything comes down all at once. So it was very important for them to receive these rains. And remember that these rains, they speak of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. A lot of times you hear people talking about the latter rains. I mean, there's been entire movements of the, the latter rains. You know, there are things that God wants to do in our life that we're not ready for yet because we're not receiving the gentle and soft early rains that the Holy Spirit wants to give us. We may be at a place where God wants to do something big, but he knows what he wants to do that's big could destroy us. It could wipe us out because we haven't prepared our hearts. And these are the days to prepare our hearts for the coming of the Lord. We can read in the scripture and see that big things are coming on the earth. We could open our eyes around us and see that it's already happening. Are we prepared? Are we ready? That's what Jesus is saying. Are you thirsty? If anyone is thirsty, then let him come and I will give him to drink of what I have for him. To the extent that we receive what God is doing in our lives today, to this very extent we are prepared for what God wants to do in the future. For every young person, for every child, to the extent that you receive what it is that God is doing in your life today, what he's speaking you to today. I mean, I didn't say it. I think Shalene said it, but you might have heard God saying to you today, have a little time where you stop playing video games 
or put this thing aside, or put that thing aside. Not because your parents are making you do it, because you want more out of God. Take a little time, maybe just five minutes a day to read your Bible. See what would happen. Remember the homework you got. Everybody can have that homework. Open up Ephesians. Read that prayer over yourself. Confess these things over yourself. You know, if you don't know what to do, get one of those uh, read through the Bible lists. I used to do that when I was a kid. Read through the Bible. It tells you every day what you need to read, and by the end of the year, you've read through the entire Bible. If you don't know what to do, well, you've got a calendar. What is today? The 6th? Open up Proverbs chapter 6 and read Proverbs chapter 6. If you don't understand it, it's okay. You'll understand something. In it. But read the Word of God, and God will begin to do something in your life. If you want something to change, then you have to do something different, right? And if you want the Holy Spirit to move in your life, then you have to get up and go to the spout where the glory comes out. You have to get up and go to Jesus. He said, I've got something for you if you're thirsty Come and get it. Mama's not going to bring you the, 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 your, your, your supper in bed or your breakfast in bed. If you want to eat, come to the table. Everything's ready. How many parents, especially moms, can identify with that? I said dinner's ready. Yeah, just a minute, Mom, just a minute. And you feel like just going over to that table and just throwing it all in the trash. I've been working in here for an hour. I thought you were going to, or they get there, mm, you know, I don't really like broccoli that much, you know, and eat it, it's good for you, and all that stuff that parents go through all the time. Why do we do that to Jesus? I mean, if he puts broccoli on our plate, how do you know you don't like it? Did you actually try it? Let's try some Jesus broccoli. We don't know until we actually try it. The reason we're not thirsty is because we don't try what God has for us. Think about that. You don't know if you like something until you actually try it. Remember green eggs and ham? Everybody remembers green eggs and ham, so I don't have to keep on going on this. You know what I'm talking about. If Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, that means he's creating a thirst in us. Let's come to him. Let's receive what he has for us. Let's receive this water of life that he is giving us. So on this last day, this seventh day, all the priests would bring the water in, and they would go around the altar. After they poured this water out, they would go around this altar, and they, only on the seventh day they would circle the altar seven times. And they knew that this symbolized the, the crumbling, at least one of the meanings that the rabbis talked about, is that this symbolized the uh, crumbling of the, or the fall of the wall of Jericho. That when the people went around with worship, as they worshiped with joy in their hearts, and they would go around this seven times, that the wall would come down between us and God, that God would forgive us of our sin, and the wall would come down between us and God. And so then we read on, and I'm not going to take the time to read it, but look at it. You go through here, you see a lot of people that are thinking and not drinking. They're arguing with Jesus. They don't agree with Jesus, and they don't want to listen to what Jesus has. And you come to verse 53 of chapter 7, and it says, everyone went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He went to get alone with the Father in silence and listen to his Father. And early in the morning, so what day is that? That's the eighth day, the eighth day. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, this is still part of the Feast of Tabernacles. The eighth day was the day of the solemn assembly, as it's called in the Old Testament. It was the day when everyone was supposed to be gathered together. They gathered together in what's called the court of the women. Why? So that men and women were there together. It was church, okay? And it was the great last day of this feast. It was this day of revival, okay? And so they're all gathered together, the men, the women, and the children. And what are the teachers of the law doing? They found some woman caught in adultery. They bring her to Jesus. They say, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Wow. I mean, they, they actually want to stone a woman right in the middle of their revival meeting. That can happen today. What then do you say? They were saying this because they were testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him because they're thinking and not drinking. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, a lot of people speculate about what he was writing on the ground. Somebody says he was writing their sins out on the ground. We don't know what Jesus was writing on the ground. But what this really symbolizes is the finger of God. 
Because when Moses was given the Ten Commandments, the very ones they're referring to, they were written by the finger of God on stone. And Jesus is writing on the ground. It's as if to say, I'm the one that wrote those commandments that you're accusing her by. And I know the secrets of every one of your hearts. And I know that you've all broken all of these commandments and that you all should be stoned and I'm the only one worthy to stone you. But I'm not here to stone you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here that you can be saved. That's what the whole revival meeting was about. How could you have missed it? You were at the revival meeting. I got up and said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. But you didn't come to drink. You just kept on thinking. And your thinking was stinking thinking. You weren't thinking right. I said, come to me and drink. So they brought this woman to him. He says, uh, he who is without sin among you, you know the story, let him be first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stoops down and writes on the ground. And then they heard it. They began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone in the woman where she was in the center of the court. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. She calls him Lord. Somebody finally took a drink. And it was an adulterous woman. A woman who was in, you know, the Scarlet Letter, if you ever read that book. A woman who was completely shamed in all of their public that they had that day. A woman that nobody would accept and that no one would receive. And that a few minutes ago, they were ready to stone to death with stones. She's the only one who drank. There are thousands and thousands of people there, and only one drank. And she says, no one, Lord. She calls him Lord. And Jesus said, because, we could put it in parentheses, because you've drank, because you believed in me, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more. When Jesus says, go and sin no more, this is not so much of a command as it is an empowerment. He's not saying, go, and if you ever do anything bad again, then I'm not going to protect you next time. When you receive this drink, then rivers of living water begin to flow out of your belly. You're free from sin. Go. You're not going to sin anymore. It doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes or fail and you can ask God forgiveness, but your life is not a life of sin anymore. You're not missing the mark anymore. You're on track. You're on the right road. Jesus is empowering her with the Holy Spirit. And so then in verse 12, it says, he again spoke to them. So he stands up again. He starts crying out again. And before he talked about water, this time he says, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And to fully understand that, you need to know this last thing I want to tell you. On this Feast of Tabernacles, after this seventh day, they had a massive party, okay? It was called a solemn assembly. And at a solemn assembly, everybody was commanded to come. Everyone had to be, in, be there. Nobody could, could miss. Remember the parables Jesus tells about a king who throws a big party for his son who's getting married, and everyone's commanded to come, but they won't come. And so he just rejects them and throws them out. Depart from me, because I never knew you. And he'll bring people from the highways and the byways. He'll bring the adulterous woman. He'll bring anybody in, just so all the seats in his house are filled with people that want to be there in his presence, with people that are thirsty. And so they would actually have this big celebration. And it was a feast of lights. And there would be big uh, lights lit, you know, torches lit in the, in the court of women. And the rabbis wrote of this, that the light could be seen from all around Jerusalem, all into the evening. Everything was lit up and the people would carry torches. And again, the men would dance, the men in particular. They would dance and they would dance and they would dance before the Lord. And at this moment in time, Jesus gets up and says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And if you come to me, he said, I'm the water. If you'll come to me, I'll give you to drink. He says, I'm the light. If you come to me, you'll follow me. If you'll follow that pillar of fire, if you'll follow the Holy Spirit, follow where I am leading you, you will have the light of life. You will have an anointing and you will know all things and you will not walk in darkness anymore. So it was an amazing thing that God commanded them. But if you'll allow me to, I want to read one more verse of scripture to you. 
and it's in Nehemiah chapter 8. So you've got to go way back in the Old Testament and find Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 8, which comes after those kings and Samuel kings and chronicles, you've got Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we read the story of their return from captivity into the land of promise. And in verse 13, we read these words, that on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They want to understand what God wants for their lives. They're hungry. They're thirsty. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths. These are these lean-tos, these tabernacles, during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches. And on there's a list of branches there. And the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves. By the way, the significant thing about these branches is all these trees thrive on the water that God gives to them. They all symbolize life that comes out of water. And uh, that's the importance of the willow branches. And so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, and there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance, exactly what we've been talking about. So get this. The time of Joshua is literally 1,000 years before the time of Nehemiah. And the scripture tells us that in all those 1,000 years, they never obeyed God's command. Never once did they have these revival meetings. They just kept going on and on, living their lives. You've got David in there. You've got Solomon in there. You've got Samuel in there. You've got many great prophets in these times. You've got Isaiah. You've got Jeremiah. And during all of those times, God is saying to them, I want to be more in your life. I want you to come to me and I want to fill you with my Holy Spirit. I want to pour out my water upon you. I want to pour out the rain of my spirit upon you so that those things which are not might come to pass in your life. I want to be in relationship with you. And all those times that people are too busy to go camping with Jesus. They're too busy for the revival meeting. And finally, they get thirsty when they come back from captivity and they cry out to God and God reveals this to them and they celebrate this. And it says concerning when they celebrate this, that there was great rejoicing, that God filled his children with great joy. So where do we draw the Spirit from? We see it here clearly. They were in the Word daily. Every day they were in the Word of God. When we draw the water from the Word, then we receive the joy and the wine of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have the water and we have the wine. They were in the word. They sought the word out. They sought out God's instruction for their lives. They wanted to fulfill their vow before the Lord and be obedient to the Lord. And Jesus said that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you can ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. You can ask God to fix the air conditioning on your car and he'll just click. It'll work. I don't know how. I don't know why. I'm just talking about an example from my life yesterday. Sasha tells me that AC on the PC cruiser quit, PT cruiser quit working again. All right, I'll go out there and fix it. I don't know. Start fixing it, fixing it, fixing it. It's charged up. Everything's in. This thing's good. I know that. It's brand new. Pressure works. Everything. And there's no, no cold air blown out. Just hot air. And I walk over to Tanya, and I say, I'm done with that PT cruiser. I'm sick of fixing that, a that AC on that PT Cruiser. Something's wrong with it. I don't know. We need to go get it repaired, and it's just not worth the amount of money that it costs to put a new compressor in there and all that kind of stuff. It's a great, great car, but, you know, she can just put the windows down, open the sunroof, and until it gets cold outside. 
And as soon as I say those words out of my mouth, literally, I say those words out of my mouth, and something on the inside rises up on the inside of me, the voice of the Holy Spirit, and says that you will not be defeated. <laughs> Just these words, you will not be defeated. And I say to God, I say, God, you know how the AC works, and I'm really sick of it. And it's hot out here, and I don't know what to do with this thing. And the Lord says, go get in it and drive it down to Jackson's and drive back. Literally just says that to me. I get in it, drive it down to Jackson's and drive back. Starts blowing some cold air. Well, that's just a little fluke. It's going to stop. So I go out there and check it. And finally, all of a sudden, it, it, the compressor clicks in fully. Okay? And it starts sucking all that Freon in and all this stuff. And I get a proper reading and I charge it to the right place. And it's blowing ice cold air now like like it probably did when it was brand new and like it never has since i've owned it okay and i'm saying you're my mechanic jesus Amen. you know how to do everything if you ask he will give you the answers Amen. okay but if we're asking and we're not receiving maybe because we're not asking with that thirst we're not asking in the way that he wants us to ask that he needs us to ask that we really want to receive whatever it may be that he may give to us. Because it could have been, I could have asked him about that, and he would have said, I've been telling you, get rid of that car and go do it right now. And he can tell you whatever he wants to tell you. But are we willing to do whatever it is that he tells us to do? I'm giving you a, just this little example that's not even important compared to the big things in life. But he wants us to walk in the fullness of joy. He wants our prayers to be answered. He wants us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the last thing I want to tell you is last week I was talking about not hindering the children when they're coming to Jesus, if you remember. And someone asked me this week this question, what do you mean about not hindering the, the children? And I knew what I meant, but I wasn't really able to formulate it maybe exactly right. So I started praying about that. And you know what the Lord told me? You know how we're hindering our young people? Do you know how we're hindering our children? How we're hindering them from, come to, come, from coming to Jesus? I want to tell you two things. Number one way we're hindering them is because we're not thirsty. We're not thirsty. When they went to Branson, they got into a crowd of people that were thirsty. When you get into a crowd, when your parents and the adults around you are drinking, you're going to drink with them. When they're thirsty, you're going to have the same thirst. When they see that all you ever do is look at your screen also, that's all they're going to do is look at their screen also. Are we thirsty for God? Are we thirsty for Him? If we don't, are not thirsty, we cannot expect our children to be thirsty either. Jesus said, is anyone thirsty? And the other thing was this. Jesus said, this, or it says, concerning what Jesus said, that the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, I think the main way that we're hindering our young people from coming to Jesus is that we're not glorifying Jesus in our lives. We sing words, but are we glorifying him in our home? Are we glorifying him with our confession? Are we glorifying Jesus? Where Jesus is lifted up, he draws all men unto himself. Where Jesus is lifted up, the Holy Spirit is given. The Holy Spirit is moving in that place. So if we're not seeing the fullness of what we want to see and what God wants to see in our lives, if we're not seeing the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we're not glorifying Jesus as he deserves and needs to be glorified by us. We actually need it. He doesn't need it. We need that in our lives. To glorify him, to magnify him, to make him number one in our lives, that there's nothing and no one more important than our resurrected Lord and Savior, because where we He is glorified in that Before place, leave, the Holy Spirit that if you is want to poured out receiving and updates on new sermons that you Let's stand together. To if you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.